I don't know if you guys, um, some of you guys know that I follow um, astronomy, and um, and last night it would have been right up in the sky, right up there. Um, is my favorite star. You guys know what it is. A lot of you guys know what it is, and it's a star Betelgeuse. And German spelling B E T E L G E U S E. It's a uh, Betelgeuse, and um, even though it's not that far away from, you know, if we look at stars in the universe, it's it's really it's only 640 light years away. That's still a long ways. If your car could travel at the speed of light, it would still take you 640 years to get to it. Um, but it amazes me in thinking of God's creation, and we're seeing it all around us. Um, Betelgeuse is um, 700 million miles in diameter. And um, it really perplexes scientists because um, they just can't figure it out in so many ways. But if you think about seven, 700 million miles in diameter and our own sun is less than one million miles in diameter. So if the star, which is, a, it's a sun, okay, if the star Betelgeuse was in our solar system, it would go past Mercury and Mars and Earth and Venus and about a hundred million miles past Jupiter. So it would fill up a big section of our solar system. And it's hard to even comprehend that. It's like, whoa. Um, and I, I tell guys who are really wrapped up in the world, you know, they're looking horizontally all the time. The next deal, you know, how am I going to get through the next day? How am I going to get through life? And I say, um, if you could tie a string on your chair, and stretch that string to Betelgeuse. Okay, so 640 um, light years away, and you pull one hair out of your head, and, and for some of you, you might have to take it off your arm. <laughs> Sorry. But if you take one hair out of your head, and you lay that hair perpendicular on the string, the width of the hair is your life on this earth. The string is eternity. So here's the question. How much time are you spending on the hair versus the string? And what did Bill talk about last night? He's talking about eternity. So how much time are we, are we spending meditating on eternity and in the Word? So... If you guys want to see Betelgeuse, uh, if it's clear uh, tonight, just look over in this direction. You'll see Orion, the constellation of Orion, those three stars. Just go to the left from the top star, and it's about three links, and you'll see a very bright star, and that's Betelgeuse. Yeah, so you can, and so it's really, uh, it's really fun to, um, to learn more about something as simple as just one star of the 
you know, quadrillion of the stars. And, you know, they think now, NASA thinks that um, there may be close to a, um, uh, I'll get this right, but a, a trillion galaxies. Galaxies. Our Milky Way galaxy, um, you know, is just one, one of the galaxies. So, anyway, it's uh, really amazing when you start thinking about this. So, without any um, delay, um, we're going we're gonna to be bringing Jerry up here in a second. But first, I would like our dear brother, George Hernandez. And if you haven't met George Hernandez, you have to meet this guy. Okay, so he is one great dude. I love you, George. Yeah, so George is going to open us, uh, open our time up in prayer. If you, uh, I, great, everyone's removed their hats. Wonderful. Okay, George. Father, we come before you in the, in the name of Jesus. By the power of your Holy Spirit, God, you're the creator of all things. God, you have spoken light into existence. And Lord, without your light, there's no life. God, thank you for the galaxies. Thank you for Beetlejuice and being so intentional on creating earth and all your creation, Lord God. Lord, I pray that you would help us to, to set this time as holy, set apart. Would you anoint this time? Would you help us to, to hear from you this morning? Holy Spirit, would you help us to see Jesus this morning? Holy Spirit, would you continue to move and soften hearts and Give us the, the focus, the energy, God, the intentionality, Lord God, to, to be present with open hearts, God. Would you continue to sanctify us and stretch us and grow us? Lord, thank you for your truth, God. Thank you for your word. God, thank you for speaking and using men, God, to, to bring forth your heart and your message in your intentionality with your creation, God. Thank you for each brother that's present this morning. God, would you use us for your glory and our joy. In Jesus Christ's name we pray, Father. Amen. Amen. Thank, thank you, George. Um, okay, Jerry, um, are you all mic'd up? And you can come on up. Good morning, guys. The title of my talk, as you can see from the program, is The End of Christendom. I stole that title from a guy by the name of Malcolm Muggridge. Muggridge was a Brit, a journalist, and he gave an address in 1980 to the Pascal Society with this title, The End of Christendom. And Muggeridge was not alone in, in expressing that kind of sentiment. Uh, you, you see it in the writings of um, Chesterton, 
You see it in the writings of C.S. Lewis, Francis Schaeffer. And so it's an idea that's, that has been percolating in the minds of uh, Christian men for some time now. Now, again, Muggeridge entitled this The End of Christendom, and that was in 1980. 1980 is 43 years ago, and things have not gotten better since then. The reason I want to talk about this is that men are scared. I I can't remember the last time I met somebody who wasn't scared. The stuff that is happening in the world is frightening. And men, I do not know if it means that the Lord's return is imminent. What I am convinced of is that all of us are best served to believe that it is. And that the reason for that is men need a reason to move in the direction of Jesus Christ. We lack urgency in that. And so God provides two exit doors from the planet. First is death. And the second is the rapture of his people. And God wants you to think, I might die today or Jesus might return today because we lack urgency. And so he, he, he has done this, I suggest, men, throughout all of the generations of Christians, that each generation has had sufficient reason to believe by observing world events that the Lord's return is imminent. And every generation so far has been wrong. But one generation of Christians is going to be right. And independent of that, you're best served by thinking he's right at the door. The other thing I want to say before we get into the material is that as, as you guys become increasingly better uh, Bible students, understanding the counsel of God, you've probably noticed that there's a certain, I guess the word I'll use is dynamism. There's a certain dynamism in the Bible. And I mean that in a very specific way. There is movement from Genesis to Revelation. There is movement in ideas, and the ideas pertain to the person of God, and they pertain to the redemption plan of God. And God doesn't give us the whole plan in the beginning. He teases it out. And we see increasing information as we go along and work our way through the scripture. Now there's a second dynamism in the Bible, and that is historical. And what I want to suggest to you men is that what God has done is that he has given us the whole of redemption history in the Bible. And the little slice of it that I want to talk about is the end game. What does it look like 
as God begins to wrap up history. And man, it's important to remember that history is nothing but the playing out of what God has already done. Hebrews 4.3, his works were finished from the foundation of the world. We're simply watching what God has already done. Gentlemen, God is purposeful, he is moral, and he is lawful. And you see that in history. If you are looking through the right lenses, if you look through the lenses of the culture of which we are a part, you will not see it. You will only see it through a biblical grid. Let me pray for us and we'll get after it. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful for the privilege of proclaiming your word. I pray, Lord, that you would send your Holy Spirit among us, that he and he alone would speak, that he would give understanding, conviction, and he would change us into the image of your son, Jesus. Lord, please be in our presence. Please direct, for Christ's sake, amen. In 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul says to Timothy, Indeed, all who would live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, gentlemen, that has been true for most of our Christian brethren, but it has not been true for most of us in the modern West. And the reason that is the case is because of this construct called Christendom. Christendom is the outgrowth of the wedding of the church and what originally was a Greek culture, a Greek and Roman culture. We're going to talk about how this came together. But let me suggest to you men that Christendom and the church, and I'm say, when I say church, I mean the elect. I mean the bride of Christ. I'm not talking about buildings or institutions. I'm talking about the people of Jesus, his bride. The church and Christendom are two different things. The church is head, headed by the Lord Jesus. And he and he alone builds the church. Christendom is a product of men. Now again, it is a culture that took Christianity, wedded it to certain Greek and certain Roman ideas, and that took place in the early centuries of the church. Really took up a head of steam by the time you get to the time of Constantine in the 4th century and Augustine in the late 4th and early 5th century. And it produced what in my opinion is the greatest culture in the world. And it was not because of the Greeks, and it was not because of the Romans. 
It was because of Jesus Christ. Now, gentlemen, I'm going to try to do my very best to trace this history for us. And the reason I'm tracing this history is because this, this, this birth and growth of Christendom, I believe, plays a central role in the end times. And prophecy, men, is necessarily ambiguous. And I do not claim to be right about everything I'm going to say to you. In fact, I'm sure I'm wrong about a lot of things. But I just remind you, men, that when Christ came to die for our sins, as best I can tell, nobody but nobody understood his mission until after the fact. They had all of the Old Testament prophecies, but as best we know, nobody put the pieces together and nobody understood why he came. And I say that because I'm going to talk about prophecy and I don't want you to think that I know what I'm talking about. I'm giving you my best shot as I understand it now. Fair enough? All right. Now, so what we're going to do, remember we talked about this dynamism, this movement in the Bible of history and ideas. What we're going to talk about is how did Christendom develop. We're going to start with Daniel chapter 2. Then we're going to look at three passages out of the Gospels. Then we're going to look at the development of the church through the book of Acts. And then we're going to divert from the Bible and look at inter-Advent history as it pertains to the West. How did the West develop into Christendom? And then finally, we'll end with the book of Revelation. Now again, men, my thesis is that God is the author of history, and therefore he is the author of eschatology. And that those events, the end-time events... You have to understand the West because eschatologically, that's where the action is. I'm not aware of another, another thing that hap- has to happen to Israel because Israel, of course, is the other player in all of this. I'm not aware of another prophecy that must be fulfilled with respect to Israel prior to the beginning of the tribulation. And you may say, well, what about the temple? The temple can be built... Has, just has to be there by mid-trib in order for the Antichrist to commit the abomination of desolation. So prophetically, eschatologically, watch the West. Okay? Let me pause there. Any um, questions or clarifications? All right. I got more on my place, pr- plate than I can say grace over so if we get through this it will certainly be a miracle on the order of the parting of the Red Sea (laughs) gentlemen note with me that Christianity was born at the height of a brutal Roman Empire and that not only so as we're going to see momentarily God drove 
the center of religion, that is Judaism, which was in Jerusalem, God drove the center of religious history from Jerusalem to Rome. And we're going to look at that as we get through Acts. So he put his people right in the middle of this brutal empire. And I say that, men, because the last empire before Jesus comes the second time is a resurrection, a reconstituted Roman Empire. And that we are in the belly of the beast. We are in the middle of it. It's not an accident. It's God-directed. He was in control then, and he is in control now. So, if you don't hear anything else, hear this. The times may be perilous, but God is in complete control. And we have to be faithful, strong, courageous, and we have to act like men. So, what's Christendom? It's a fusion of the church with the state politically and the culture ideologically. It's the invention of man, though it includes the true church. Christendom is the product of man. The church is the work of Jesus Christ, plus nobody. And in the context of our talk, it is a Western phenomenon. Now, let me give you an illustration. So, so again, men, Christendom is a, is a cultural phenomenon It's political, it's social, it's economic. It's all the stuff that grew out of that mix of the Greeks, Romans, and Christianity. Now let me see if I can illustrate pictorially what I mean. This is a picture of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, largest church in the world. It's said to seat an estimated 60,000 people. You walk into this and you are overwhelmed by the beauty, the grandeur, and opulence of it. When you walk in, just to the right, there is this statue, Michelangelo's Pieta. And it's of Jesus in the arms, the dead body of Jesus in the arms of his mother. Let me suggest to you that this picture helps us to understand the difference between true Christianity, the true church, and Christendom. Christendom produced a world of opulence, a world of great gain. Man, guys, I'm not, I'm not, I am the beneficiary of having been part of Christendom. God, thank you, thank you, thank you. But it is not the true church. And gentlemen, it is so easy for us in the West, particularly us in the United States, to conflate the interests of Jesus and the interests of country. They are not the same. The United States is not Israel. 
So the way of Christendom, and, and parenthetically, man, I am not knocking the Roman Catholic Church. This is in, in symbolic of all of the churches who have gone apostate, even, including the evangelicals. This is what Christendom produced, and it's bright and shiny and attractive. We all want that. This is Christianity. As Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. True statement. True statement. You want to follow Jesus? Yeah. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. So if we're following Jesus on a daily basis, he says, take up your cross daily and follow me. Gentlemen, the cross is an instrument of death. You want to follow Jesus? Come and die. So we're going to start in Daniel. I said Daniel chapter 2, so if you want, flip over there because we'll be reading out of that shortly. The Bible traces eschatology largely through the book's of Daniel and Revelation. Daniel gives a big picture and it stretches over millennia. Revelation is more detailed and covers primarily, once you get past um, the first five chapters, from 6 to 19, covers the final seven years of this dispensation. It is the final seven years of redemption history until the big jump that takes place in the, millenni- in the first the millennium and then the new Jerusalem. So let's go to Daniel chapter 2 and observe with me that Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream of this gigantic statue made of four different metals. And he describes these, these, uh, this statue and these different metals represent different kingdoms. Three of the kingdoms dominate Israel's history from the time of Daniel until Christ, and those are Babylon, number one, Medo-Persia, number two, and Greece, number three. But then he describes a fourth kingdom, and that fourth kingdom is Rome. Let me read for you Daniel chapter 2, verse 40. Daniel says, Then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things. So like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. That is, it will crush and break all the other kingdoms of the world. So, Daniel goes on to say that after that, the Lord will come. So Daniel says Rome is the last kingdom. Now, gentlemen, that's problematic. The reason it's problematic is because there are lots of kingdoms after ancient Rome, right? So what, what do you mean, Daniel? And let me suggest to you that there is a break in time 
in Daniel 2. The break in time is between verse 40 and then verses 41 and following. Verse 40 that I just read to you is the time of Christ's first advent. That is, Jesus came to the world during the reign of the Roman Empire. And Daniel 41 to 44, we'll get to in a bit, refers to his second advent. We're getting ahead of ourselves. So are you with me so far? Okay. This break in time is what Jesus called the times of the Gentiles. It's in Luke 21, 24. And it may stretch all the way from Babylon to the last days, probably as far, possibly as far as the end of the tribulation. But at any rate, it's a time of Gentiles. It's a setting aside of Israel and a turning to the Gentiles and the church of Jesus Christ. Now, let's go to Matthew 21, verse 43. And this is this transition. Jesus is talking about this transition from Israel to what will become the Gentile church, or largely Gentile church. Matthew 21, verse 43. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. He's talking to Israel. The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. That's the Gentile church. Okay? So, very important passage. Now, Daniel, and Revelation bears this out, says that the church is going to be centered in Rome. How does that come about? How do we get from Jerusalem, which is the spiritual center of the world at the time, how do we get from Jerusalem to Rome? So that's what I want to talk about next, how the the Bible's description of how that happened. Good? Okay. You guys are very kind to me, but don't be bashful if you have a question. Let's go to John chapter 12. It's a very, very unusual encounter. John chapter 12, I'm going to read verses 20 to 23. 12. I'm sorry, did I say 10? 12, 1, 2. John 12, 20 to 23. Now this gentleman is right before chapter 13 through 17. 13 through 17 of John is the upper room discourse. When Jesus is giving his last instructions to his disciples before he goes to the cross. So John 12, 20 to 23 says, Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These men then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them saying, get his answer. So the, question, the, the, the request is, some Greeks want to see you. And this is Jesus' response. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus, what in the world is the connection? How did you get there? 
Let me suggest to you that it is the Father and the Son in in conjunction understanding the times. And that just as Jesus has rejected Israel and Israel rejected Jesus, it is now time to go to the cross because it's time for the church. It's time for salvation. You with me? Thank you, Bill. Amen and amen. And note, men, that these Greeks were both Gentile and from the West. And we're going to see this westward movement in spades as we work our way through this. So, Jesus sees that the Greeks are coming. to want it, They want to see him. And bingo, he's on the cross. Okay? Now, again, to repeat myself, what God is doing is moving the religious center of the world from Jerusalem to Rome. So to see how that happens, we have to go to the book of Acts. And so let's go to arguably, you can make a very strong case that historically, the two most important chapters in the book of Acts are chapter 15 and chapter 16. Chapter 15 is the Jerusalem Council. And the result of the Jerusalem Council ensured that Christianity would split from Judaism and become a separate religion. And gentlemen, that changed everything. Among other things, it means that when you come to Jesus Christ, you don't have to go get circumcised. That's a win. But that separation of, the, of, the, of Christianity from Judaism was important. The second thing that is important is in chapter 16. And I want to read that to you and explain why I think it's important. This is Acts 16. I'm going to read verses 6 through 10. They, that is Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden, catch this, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And after they came to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. A vision appeared to Paul in the night, a man of Macedonia. That's west. Okay, that's Europe. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, immediately he sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Paul is in Asia Minor. He wants to turn, he's facing north. He wants to go right to Asia. The Spirit of God says negative. You go left, you go west to Europe. Gentlemen, that changed history. Because what it did was it drove Christianity into the waiting arms of the Greeks and the Romans. And that for reasons known to God alone, he wanted that mixture to take place. 
Together? Okay. So, after ministering in Greece and Ephesus, Paul begins to look to go to Jerusalem, beginning in Acts 19. So, there's 28 chapters in Acts. From chapter 19 to the end of the book, it's all about Paul wanting to go first to Jerusalem and then to Rome. And when he goes to Jerusalem, they put him on trial. So let's, let's look at, um, I'm going to get us to chapter 23. So he, he's put on trial when he goes to Jerusalem. He preaches the gospel when he's on trial. And they will not listen and they plot to kill him. So he's in prison in Acts 23. If you turn there, Acts 23, verse 11. And it says this, But on the night immediately following, that is, immediately following his trial, but on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. So you understand what's happening. Jesus and Israel split. Israel rejected Jesus. Jesus rejected Israel. Paul comes back to Jerusalem and preaches the gospel. And they reject his message. And so Jesus comes to Paul and says, Paul, you got to go to Rome. I'm done with Israel for the time being. And so he drives Paul to Rome. Christ himself is driving Paul to Rome. Now the rest of Acts from 23 to 26 record Paul's legal trials that eventuated in him being tried at Rome. So he's tried before various uh, tribunals, Festus and Felix and so on, King Agrippa. And then from Acts 27 to the first half of 28, they record the journey to Rome. And you think, good gravy, why are we hearing all this stuff? He's, he's on a ship. But miracles occur and so on. But the point is, the ship is going to Rome, where Paul is going to again be put on trial. And so let's turn to the last book of Acts, chapter 28. <clears throat> and I'm going to read verse 14 first. Acts 28, verse 14. It says, There we found some brethren, and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and thus we came to Rome. And then, jumping down to the last two verses of the book of Acts, Acts 28, 30 and 31, and he, that is Paul, and he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. Do you understand what God's done? He's moved Paul into the middle of this brutal empire and gives him free access to preach the gospel. 
He couldn't preach it in Jerusalem. They wanted to kill him. But here he is in Rome, and he's just jabbering away about Jesus to anybody who'll listen. And so Rome then becomes the spiritual center of the world. And it spreads ever westward from there. Got it? You see the dynamism of what, of what God is doing. Unbelievable. Oh. Lee, grab a microphone if you would, Lee, please. Actually, 14, he found some brethren. So convenient. Where, where do those guys come from? Most likely from Jerusalem. It's conceivable that they came out of Corinth or Ephesus or one of the church, other churches he founded. But they may well have been Jewish brothers. I don't know. Point is, Lee, as you know, he went on three missionary journeys prior to getting to Rome. So he had been from um, Jerusalem as far west as, as Corinth. So there's a lot of, lot of folks in there. And I think, Lee, again, that is the hand of God. He had already had people in place there in Rome. And Paul could start fellowshipping, ministering with them, and grow from there. Acts does not record Paul's death. But tradition has it that he was martyred in Rome, probably somewhere around 64 AD. Tradition has it that Peter also was martyred in Rome about the same time. And so I don't know how long Peter was there. The Bible doesn't tell us. We know Paul was there two years preaching the gospel. Peter came along, provided some assistance, and then God takes them both home. That's a miracle that, that Paul's got a ready group, ready to start the whole church in Rome. That's an absolute miracle. It is. I, yeah. Makes you want to fall down and weep. Somebody uh, did it maybe... Somebody like Bartholomew or somebody preceded Paul. Maybe Apollos. Who knows? Anyway, there's guys there. The Lord's guys. And so now we are in Rome. Now, again, men, just know with me, this is all the work of God. All of it. No man could orchestrate this. All the work of God. So, why is this important that the church is now in Rome? Because, according to Daniel, Christ will return and establish his kingdom during the reign of Rome. And eschatological history is directed from Rome and the West. No other region of the world is eschatologically important in the sense that there are no other prophecies that I can find that matter to understand how God is moving. Now again, Israel becomes the refocus of the program of God by the time you hit the beginning of the tribulation. But yeah, Lee, you remember Romans eleven twenty-five. 
I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brethren, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in and thus all Israel will be saved. So God is focusing on Gentile believers now. There are Jewish believers as well, of course, but it's predominantly a Gentile church. But by the time the, the, the tribulation comes along, there is going to be a shift back to Israel as God again orchestrates this seven-year period leading up to the return of His Son and the establishment of the kingdom that God promised to Israel in the Old Testament. Jerry, can you say that verse reference one more time? Uh, Romans eleven twenty-five, And it goes down to about 27 or 28. I can't remember. Everybody else good? So, just to reiterate, Christianity never took deep root in Israel. But it took deep root in Rome and the West. And from there spread to the rest of the world. Now, we need to go back to Daniel again. So let's go back to Daniel chapter 2. So is everybody on the same page understanding what, how God is moving these pieces? All right. So we need to go back to Daniel again to get some very important information. I'm going to read verse 40 again, the part that we already read. There will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things. So like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. And let me suggest that what he is describing there is ancient Rome, the Rome at the time of Jesus. Okay? Now, as I said, I believe there is a time gap between verse 40 and verse 41. Because in this statue, there are legs of, of iron. But the feet and the toes are a mix of iron and pottery. And I want to suggest to you that, that those feet and those toes represent a reconstituted Roman Empire. So, I'm going to read verses 41 to 43. In that you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it'll be a divided kingdom. Ancient Rome was not a divided kingdom. But it will have in it the toughness of iron, inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay, as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another even as iron does not combine with pottery. It's just what he's describing is this rebirth. And with this rebirth of the Roman Empire, <clears throat> excuse me, the Roman Empire, out of that will come Christendom. So again, men, in, in Daniel, there are no kingdoms mentioned after this last one, this Roman, reconstituted Roman Empire. That's the last kingdom that matters prophetically. Yeah, Jonathan. So maybe you're getting to this, or maybe I'm dense, but 
So we have Rome in the first century, and when is Rome reconstituted? With the, you're saying Christendom. That's where I'm come, That's where I'm going right now. Okay. Okay. Let me des- let me describe it in somebody who is more eloquent than I am. This is out of G.K. Chesterton's little book Orthodoxy, and he talks about this reconstituted Roman Empire. He doesn't talk about it in the language we're using right now. All right, listen to what, Ch- what Chesterton says. Orthodoxy. It's a great read, Bill. It's a really, it's a dense read. It's one of those, you read a paragraph and you go, holy smoke, that is, that, there's a lot of stuff there. He's, he's going to take on the idea that Christianity belongs to the Dark Ages. Okay, that's, that's what this little paragraph is about. He says, here, I did not satisfy myself with reading modern generalizations. I read a little history. And in history, I found that Christianity, so far from belonging to the Dark Ages, was the one path across the Dark Ages that was not dark. So he's talking about Rome when Jesus came there. And then after that, Rome falls. And he's talking about the rebirth. Okay? I found that Christianity, so far from belonging to the Dark Ages, was the one path across the Dark Ages that was not dark. It was a shining bridge connecting two shining civilizations. If anyone says that the faith arose in ignorance and savagery, the answer is simple. It didn't. It arose in the Mediterranean civilization in the full summer of the Roman Empire. The world was swarming with skeptics, and pantheism was as plain as the sun when Constantine nailed the cross to the mast. It is perfectly true that afterwards the ship sank, that is, the fall of Rome, took place about 476 A.D. But it is more extraordinary that the ship came up again, repainted and glittering with the cross still at the top, This is the amazing thing the religion did. It turned a sunken ship into a submarine. The ark lived under the load of waters. After being buried under the debris of dynasties and clans, we arose and remembered Rome. If our faith had been a mere fad of the fading empire, fad would have followed fad in the twilight. And if the civilization ever reemerged, and many such have never reemerged, it would have been under some new barbaric flag. But the Christian church was the last life of the old society. Catch this. It was the last life of the old society, ancient Rome, and was also the first life of the new. Got it? So Christianity is born into ancient Rome. Rome falls. You go through the Dark Ages, and now they reemerge. The the Western world reemerges out of the Dark Ages, and it is still Christianity. That is the banner. She took the people who were forgetting how to make an arch and she taught them to invent the Gothic arch. In a word, the most absurd thing that could be said of the church is the thing we have all heard said of it. How can we say that the church wishes to bring us back into the dark ages? The church was the only thing that ever brought us out of them. Jonathan? So... um... So you said, if I understood you correctly, Christendom began with marriage of the church and the state with Constantine? Yes. 
But Christendom survived through the Dark Ages? Yes. Okay. It was being built. Okay. The, the, all of the seeds were there. Okay. And so the reconstitution is... Is, is modern at, Europe yeah. and the West. Okay. So we, we all get the picture now, the, where we are? Because we're going to keep moving. Let's go back to Daniel 2. We've read from verse 40 to verse 43. Now we're going to read verse 44. In the days of those kings, what kings? Those kings represented by the ten toes. And you can see this same reference to ten kings in the book of Revelation. Okay? In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. In other words, when Jesus comes the second time, it's to this reconstituted Roman Empire, which what we're going to talk about next is how it, got, how it was originally formed and how it got polluted. Okay? Good, good? Okay, now <clears throat> i got to do something I really don't like to do. We should be able to see signs of the second coming by noticing the reconstitution. So, Jerry, is it true we should be able to smell the second coming? coming? What I'm saying, Lee, is... a reconstituted Rome? What I'm saying is Daniel prophesied the reconstitution. If you, under, if, you, if you read that Daniel 2 passage, I think through the right grid, what I believe is the right grid, it is describing the reconstitution. That's already happened. What is yet to happen, or is happening now, is the corruption. And that's what we're going to talk about next. The corruption of that empire. Okay? Now to understand that, we have to look at the advent, uh, the inter-advent history of the West. How did we become who we are as a people? Okay? So that's what we're going to talk about next. Let's see, do I have, yeah. Question is, how do I know what truth is? And let me suggest to you, I'm not going to dwell on this, but you have two avenues. You have... You can base your knowledge on reason, that, and, and then that means you're basing your knowledge on what men believe. Or you can base your knowledge on revelation, that is, the Bible. In which case, it is what God tells you. And the point is, nobody save Jesus Christ, the only human being who could ever ground knowledge <clears throat> in himself and not something else, was Jesus. All the rest of us have to ground knowledge in things outside ourselves. And so this is how the West developed. Let's take the, the side of Revelation. So they begin separately. And over here, redemption history begins chiefly through Abraham. Okay? Abraham goes to Moses and the law. King David, the greatest king of Israel, and he, it is on 
David's throne that Christ will sit in the millennial kingdom. Israel disobeys God, goes into the Babylonian captivity. The last of the Old Testament books written is Malachi. And then Jesus Christ comes on that side of the curve. Okay? That part you'll, you'll know well. All right? All right, I'm going to come back to the Edict of Milan shortly. So over here, it's interesting that the Greeks were very prolific during the, the time between the end when the Bible was completed and Jesus returns. I mean, sorry, Jesus comes for salvation. This stuff all took place in between here and here. And this system of thought, born with Socrates, Plato, and Alexander, was disseminated to the then known world by the conquests of Alexander the Great. And so the ideas of the Greeks, the world, the known world became Greek, including Rome, because they were influenced by the, the ideas of these men. And again, these guys were not reasoning from Scripture. They were reasoning from human understanding. Okay? Good so far? Okay. So, Christ comes. We've talked about how the church is born, how it ends up in Rome. And in 313, a Roman emperor by the name of Constantine was a pagan who became a Christian. And prior to Constantine, there were 10 persecutions of Christians starting in 64 and running to about 310. So just three years before Constantine and the Edict of Milan, the church was persecuted. They were hunted. Constantine comes to Christ and begins inviting these same persecuted, hunted Christians into his court. Wow, that's a, that's a miracle. And so, something happened in this time period that's very, very important. In fact, three somethings happened. During this period, some of the church leaders began to integrate the philosophy primarily at this time of Plato. And they began to integrate it into Christianity. It became part of Christianity. For example, one of the difficulties that the early church encountered was, how do I understand the Trinity? And they used much of the thought of Plato to do that. So they synthesized much of Greek thought with Christianity during this time period. <clears throat> Second thing they did when Constantine came to power is they began to wed the interests of the church with the interests of the state. And I remind you, Ben, the interests of the state are temporal and the interests of Christ are eternal. And no man can serve two masters. But men, just think about your own experience. The, the, the cares and worries of the world impress themselves much more on us 
than do the concerns of Jesus. That's just how we are because we're sinful. And so the church, in doing that, began to take on an increasingly temporal outlook. The third thing that happened during this time is that the church adopted the hierarchy of the Roman Empire. And so this this idea of popes and bishops and so on over the laity occurred. And that's part of taking on the um, structure of Rome, the governing structure of Rome. It created a distinction between laity and clergy, a distinction that you find in the Old Testament, but not the New. Gentlemen, note with me that in doing that, in essence, the church replicated what Israel did in the book of Samuel. Israel started out as a theocracy. And Israel said, we don't want to be a theocracy. We want a man to rule over us. And Samuel was grieved. God says to Samuel, Samuel, don't worry about it. They reject me, not you. I'll take care of this. So they had kings. And I'd suggest that we, the church, have done something very similar. Jesus Christ is ruler over his church, but he rules through the Holy Spirit. And he wants that Holy Spirit to move each of us in the way he wants to move us. And instead, what we've produced is a passive Christianity where some guy stands up front pretending like he knows something and we all sit and listen. And that's it. All of us are priests. All of us have a duty to Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit is the director of that. And men, as I do studies with guys about spiritual gifts, I find very few men who even know what their spiritual gifts are. Do not let that be true of you. Plead with God. Lord, I want to know why I'm here, what I'm supposed to do. I want to know. I pour out everything on me. I want them all. So, gentlemen, that passivity has weakened us greatly. We cannot be passive. You've got to learn how to feed yourself from that book and then go do what it says. So, Augustine kind of synthesized all this stuff theologically and he wrote a book called The City of God. So, note, men, that there is a union, in a sense, an, un, an un, uneasy union between the Bible on the one hand and the reason of men on the other. And that union lasted from 400 all the way down to an event called, whoops, hang on, Jerry, whoa, what happened? I, I can't go back. Oh, I hate that. All right. Um, what happened is that, that, that fusion that lasted from 400 to 1700 over a few centuries began to weaken. In the 14th century, 
there were three cataclysms. The Hundred Years' War, the so-called Babylonian captivity of the church. Yeah, here we are. Oh, thank you. Right here. Babylonian captivity of the church and um, plague, the Black Death. Thank you, Jonathan. So that began to weaken this union. So after that, next century, the Renaissance takes place. And that's a rediscovery of some of the things that were lost in, uh, in Rome during the Dark Ages. And during that time, among other things, they, they had already integrated Plato with the church. Now they integrated Aristotle. After that is the Protestant Reformation. That's a big, that's a big hit to the unity of the church. And so this, we, this is really getting very weak now, this relationship. And then the scientific revolution hits. Galileo, Isaac Newton, and so on. And that, took, that placed another burden on this union. And finally, the Enlightenment. What you have to understand about the Enlightenment is that it was a conscious rejection of all authority, save the authority of reason, human reason. We specifically, the Enlightenment figure said, we specifically reject the authority of the church and we reject the authority of the Bible. Now that started in full bloom at the Enlightenment. And it started at the level of the so-called intellectuals. But that thinking has begun to trickle down and is now deeply embedded in Western culture. Yes, I don't want to talk about romanticism. Um, I don't even want to talk about cultural Marxism. But it's at the heart, this is at the heart. If, if you want to understand what's happening now, you have to understand cultural Marxism. Because it is what has produced all the stuff that's going on favored groups and unfavored groups is a product of, of this. And finally, where we are now is we are a secular culture. As a culture, we have completely divorced ourselves from Christ. And the result on... You probably can't see that. The result on this side of the equation is apostasy. So again, men, what I'm saying is this union which lasted from 400 to 1700 is now split. And these guys are off on their own but they have polluted the church. We have imbibed the thinking of the world. And gentlemen, there's a study by George Barna for people who were self-proclaimed evangelicals. And it asked about various aspects of Christian worldview. 82% of evangelical Christians do not have a biblical worldview. And worse than that, the I don't know what the percentages are, but the percentage of people who have a biblical morality in the church is very, very small. 
I don't know if there are any virgins left. I don't know if there are virgins at any marriages anymore. Everybody I know takes it for granted that you can be sexually active prior to getting married. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. Everything that we're looking at came from these two things as a culture and largely as a church. We have a secular worldview. I'm sorry, a secular morality and a Marxist worldview. Any questions? How much time do I have? Okay. Yeah, Jonathan. So, um, if I understand you correctly, you're saying that the the end of Christendom, as painful as it may be for us to witness, is a necessary and good thing? It is it is of God. Again, God when, when God said to Paul, when Jesus said to Paul, go west, don't take it east, he drove Christianity into the arms of the waiting Romans and the Greeks. I suggest that was deliberate. It was a test. Are you guys going to follow me or are you going to listen to the Greeks and the Romans? And we said, we'll take plan B. We want to believe the Greeks and the Romans. We want to be like them rather than be like you. I don't know anybody who ever consciously said that. But in effect, that's what happened. Uh, Did I remember right when Walt Hendrickson was showing the rise of the layman's movement in conjunction with what you're describing here, the the secularization of morality and the uh, and the church becoming uh, uh, more cultural, it, it it gave the impetus to the rise of the lay movement, which was what? Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, I'll just say real briefly, it gave rise to, among other things, the Plymouth Brethren. And the Plymouth Brethren decided that they needed to take a fresh look at eschatology. Eschatology had been so-called amillennial for, well, well before this time. But by this time, the church had become virtually universally amillennial. And the Plymouth Brethren took a relook at eschatology, and their system was called dispensationalism. And it gave rise eventually to the Bible movement, and it gave rise eventually to in the 19, late 1960s and early 70s, an actual revival. You know, the Jesus people. I can't, what's the name of that movie? Uh, thank you. Yeah. So that was, that was a real thing, I believe. I think that was a real moving of the Holy Spirit. But it brought my generation right square into the middle of evangelicalism. And we brought a lot of old and bad habits with us. And among those was we, we, had, we had thrown a hissy fit on the college campuses and basically gotten away with it. And so we come into the church, find the doctrine of grace, and say, we were right all along. There aren't any consequences for behavior. So 
that idea that there are no eternal consequences for temporal behavior is out of the pit of hell. That is a lie of the enemy. And do not listen if somebody tells you that. That is wrong. There's lots of consequences for temporal behavior. Bill talked about that last night. Okay. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Okay, let me talk for a minute why it's problematic to um, have this wedding of church and state interests. Men, the, the pursuit of God and the pursuit of heaven are not the same thing. Everybody, believer and unbeliever alike, wants heaven. Now, he may not call it heaven. He may call it utopia. He may call it paradise. But we all want eternal, ever-sustained bliss. That's just how we're wired. We all want that. That is the pursuit of heaven. And men tend to believe that they can pursue heaven on their own terms. The pursuit of God is different. Bill talked about last night loving him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Gentlemen, in the integrity of your heart, can you say that's true of you? And if you don't like the answer, fall on your knees before him. Lord, what I, what I want out of life is you. I'll pay any price for that. I want you. And men, let me, let me just make a remark. Yeah, please, Bill. Um, every effort by man to create utopia has at its heart been in opposition to God. And it started with the Tower of Babel. They said, we can, uh, we can reach the heavens without pursuing God. And communism, socialism, you name it, these are, all of them have the admirable desire of creating the perfect society and the perfect man. And all of them in the process of doing so has killed millions and millions of people brutally. Yeah. Bill, just tag along with that. I agree completely. That um, it is altogether too human to want to change the world. J. 
Jesus didn't come to change the world. He came to change people. There's a price tag to be changed. Cost you your life. That's why we want heaven and not God. And nobody can change people except Jesus Christ. There's just no other way. Well, gentlemen, let me just bound ahead here. Um, The final form of Christendom is apostasy. Let me read from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm going to start at verse, <clears throat> excuse me, verse 1. Now we request, request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the rapture. The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way for it will not come. Jesus will not return unless the apostasy comes first. That is 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 4. So the apostasy must occur. Well, I suggest, gentlemen, the apostasy has occurred. I cannot tell you if the apostasy that we are part of is the one that, P- that Paul is talking about here in 2 Thess 2. But make no mistake, we are an apostate church. We disregard huge chunks of the scripture. You can, you can, there's two ways to judge a church. Is what they teach biblically accurate? And the second way is, are there things they simply won't talk about? Jerry. Yeah, Ted? This may sound very simplistic, but please help me understand what apostate or apostasy means. It means to fall away. And you can fall away by, by simply saying, I don't believe Jesus. Or you can fall away by not doing what he says. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Gentlemen, if you are not afraid of God Almighty, you do not know who you're dealing with. And Jesus is not this gentle little thing who's so timid he wouldn't hurt a fly. He may come to you with open arms or he may come to you in wrath. But he is coming. And the seed time for what it looks like when he comes is now. Every day counts. Um, Dan, I'm I'm not going to make your blood pressure go up any higher. Um, Let me suggest, men, that that apostate church, I believe, is pictured in Revelation chapter 17 where you see the great harlot riding on the beast. That the harlot represents apostate Christianity and the beast, the state, the final form of the state. And the woman believes she has control over the state. 
But the state turns on her. The Antichrist turns on the church. It turns on the apostate church. It hates the harlot and consumes her. God lets him do that. And he hates the true believers of Christ. And so men, one of the reasons it's important to understand that is you can't be a lukewarm Christian and think that you'll get out of harm's way. Antichrist hates the harlot and he's going to destroy her. Your only protection is Jesus. And so, I guess, guys, our problems, men, are spiritual and they are not political. And Jesus works in each of us. How much do you want him to do? How much you, what parts of you are you holding back? Does he have free access to everything? Let me read, finish with this passage. This is 2 Timothy chapter 2. <clears throat> Part of it's right up here. 2 Timothy chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Gentlemen, the question before the house is, are you a soldier? God guided the church through the first Roman Empire. He'll do the same through the second. We need to be strong in him. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Okay. <clears throat> Thank you, Jerry. Thank you, Jerry.